All right, ladies. Glad you're here tonight. I hope you all got some of Donna's uh, popcorn buffet back there. It was outstanding. Um, so glad you're here. This is the third week in our series, Words of Love from the Cross. I hope, I hope you've really enjoyed it. It's been really meaningful for us that are spending lots of time with Jesus and his last words um, while he was on the cross. It's been beautiful. Tonight we're looking at the third saying from the cross. And the, the theologians, they have two different descriptions for this. Some of it call this the words of responsibility. And some of them will say these are the words of devotion. And so I looked at both of those and I thought, okay, for me personally, responsibility kind of sounds like what you do because you're supposed to do it. And devotion sounds like what you do because you desire to do it. And so we're landing on devotion tonight. I looked it up. Devotion, it says, is a feeling of strong love or loyalty. It's described as ardent and dedicated. And I thought, okay, I think that's what we see Jesus doing from the cross. It made me think of what are the things I'm devoted to. Did it make any of you think that? It made me wonder, where have I experienced that kind of devotion in my own life? And I prayed about that for a day or two, and God was really sweet to give me some beautiful, beautiful memories. Um, a real profound one about 10 years ago. I was a, a, a younger mom with uh, three younger sons and going through a difficult transition. And I had lots of friends and family members who were devoted and loyal to me during that time. But my dad really stands out profoundly. There was one afternoon when I had to have an appointment with a lawyer and I had to ask some hard questions about our legal and financial future, and my dad went with me. And he sat right beside me, and he pulled his chair over close, and we sat there and we listened to this lawyer describe a pretty bleak future for me and my boys. And it took all the wind that was left in our sails. It pretty much took it out. And when we stood to go, my dad stood beside me and just immediately took my elbow, just grasped my arm so tight, and so strong. And we walked through the lobby and he held onto my arm. And we went down a flight of stairs and he held onto my arm. And I kept thinking, he thinks I'm going to faint. He thinks I'm going to pass out. And he's going to have to hold me up. And my dad's a little bit smaller than I am. So he held me tight and we got all the way across the parking lot. And then he turned me around and he said, daughter, you need to hear this. And I'll never forget it. He looked at me square in the face and he said, you are not alone and you still have a family and your family is going to walk through all of this with you. And at least four times he just stood there and he repeated, you are not alone, you have a family. And so to this day, those have been some of the most profound words that have ever been spoken to me. And they have prov proven true. My dad has been faithful and devoted to me and my boys my whole life. And I'm so grateful. And the truth is, when families function the way God designed them to function, they display devotion all the time, don't they? That was such a perfect picture of how God wants us to be devoted in families. We see the same devotion as Jesus looks out from the cross. He looks out from his own suffering, and he acts in the very best interest of Mary, his mother, his family. All through his life, he's the perfect picture of obedience and devotion. And we always have to remember, Jesus is deity, that means the Son of God, and he's also humanity, which means the Son of Man. And so he acts his whole life in devotion and obedience to both his heavenly father and to his earthly family, his parents. And it's quite, 
quite remarkable, but never do we see Jesus allowing his deity to elevate himself above his family responsibilities. Jesus stays responsible and devoted to his family to the very end, and it's truly, truly remarkable. And we see both of those things displayed there on the cross. We're going to read from John 19 today, these, uh, this third saying of Jesus, and I want to talk just a little bit about the book of John. Kathy explained to you last week, There's four books that we call Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are the accounts of the time when Jesus walked on the earth, and and it comes from eyewitnesses. So this is where we read everything about his earthly life, his ministry, his death on the cross, and his resurrection. Um, But they're all just a little bit different. They never contradict each other, but the differences are because each writer has a specific purpose that he's trying to communicate. And when John writes, He's very clear. His purpose is quite simply that you would believe, that you would believe. You'll see on your verse sheet, John 20, 31, and John says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's always what we're seeing in John. He's going to tell us um, how Jesus lives, what kind of miracles he performs, and he's going to focus more than the other gospel writers on how does Jesus describe himself. And he does that so we'll know and so we'll believe that he is the Son of God and the Son of Man, so that we will believe that he came to bring God's kingdom to us now, so that we will believe that we can live differently with God because he has been here. That is what John writes about, and that's why he writes. John is the one that describes Jesus as the Word, remember? And the Word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us. And when John says Jesus is the Word, that means Jesus is the complete expression of God. Jesus came not to act independently, but to completely express what God wanted expressed here. So when we see who Jesus is and when we see what Jesus does, we see the heart and character of God because Jesus is God's character. Um, And I think that's totally what we're going to see. When we see Jesus acting with devotion, we can know for certainty that God was devoted in the same area and in the same place. So as we begin reading in John 19, we're going to pick right up with this third saying, but I want to refresh your memory a little bit. Um, What has happened up to this point? I think it's really important to remember. Jesus has gone before the Jewish leaders, and they have questioned him and tried him. While that was happening, they slapped him, they spit on him, they beat him. Then he was taken before Pilate. Pilate questioned and tried him also. Pilate had him scourged, which was a terrible, terrible punishment. Then the soldiers take their turn. They strike him with their hands. They put a crown of thorn on his heads. They mock him. They beat him. He goes out to the place where he's going to be crucified. They strip him naked. They nail him to the cross. And while he is struggling there on the cross, those soldiers are gambling to see who gets to take home his clothes after he dies. And all the while, the Jewish people, his own people, they're shouting, crucify him. And they're mocking him and they're jeering and they're saying horrible things to him. That's where we're going to pick up in John 19. And in spite of all of that, what we're going to see is Jesus doesn't look to himself and he doesn't look at his own suffering and his own humiliation. Jesus looks out. 
I think that's a huge thing that we see him doing here. Through all of this, he looks out and he sees the humanity all around him and he identifies their needs and Jesus is devoted to meeting their needs. We've been studying this as our third week and um, each of the weeks we've studied so far, we've seen Jesus looking out. Think about it, the first week he was looking out at his tormentors at the people who wanted him up there on the cross. And with mercy and grace, he asked God to forgive them. And he says they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them. And then the second week, we studied that Jesus looks beside him. He looks out to the criminals on the cross. And when that criminal beside him professes faith and believes that he's Jesus, Jesus comforts him and he gives him the assurance that you're going to be with me in paradise. So that's Jesus looking out, and we're going to see Jesus looking out again tonight when he looks out at his mother. Read with me John 19. We're going to begin in verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. All right, all of Jesus' followers were not there at the foot of the cross, were they? Of all of his followers and his faithful um, disciples, the only ones who showed up here in the gospel accounts, the only eyewitness are these five people standing here. It's a little confusing because they all seem to have the same name. So we're going to talk about who they were. His mother, Mary, was there. Um, Her sister was there. In this account, they don't tell you her name, but other sources tell us uh, Mary's sister's name was Salome. And here's the interesting thing. Salome was the mother of John, the disciple John, who we're going to read about tonight too. So Mary was there, her sister Salome. It tells us there was another Mary there who was the wife of Clopas. It tells us Mary Magdalene was there. You remember she was the one Jesus healed her and cast demons out of her, and she became one of his followers. Um, They were all there, and standing right there with the four women was the disciple who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved like a brother, and that's John, and John always describes himself as the one who Jesus loved, which is beautiful. It doesn't tell us why John was the only male disciple there. We don't know if it was his devotion to Jesus that had overcome his fear that was paralyzing the other disciples. We don't know if it was his devotion to his own mother and his aunt that he was there as a protective escort for them. All we know is he was there with the women. Um, We know that they were there throughout the entire ordeal. All the gospel accounts kind of put the pieces together, and later they're spotted standing a little distance away. So we don't exactly know why they're there, but we know they're there, and they're up close, and they stay throughout the entire time. They're up close enough that Jesus can look out and identify them. They're close enough that that they can hear his words very clearly. So if they're that close to Jesus, they're that close to the violence. They're that close to the people who are screaming out, crucify him. They're that close to the soldiers who are beating him and hurting him. And I'm just struck with the fact that it probably was a dangerous place for those women to be. It was not a great place to be if you were a follower and a supporter of Jesus. So I'm struck that theirs was an act of profound devotion because they were in harm's way there. Um, Mary, from the very beginning when we read about Mary in the gospel accounts, 
um, we see that she's just this young woman that has this capacity to nobly accept what God brings to her. You know, we, we read in the Gospels that as a very, very young woman, not yet married, the angel Gabriel comes to her and tells her that she is going to bear the Messiah. The child she's going to bear is described as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. She doesn't quite understand how all that's going to happen, but she nobly accepts it. And now I think she's standing at the cross, not quite sure how all this is going to happen either, not sure how this child who's supposed to be the Messiah and reign forever but is dying on a cross, how is all of this going to work out? I think she may be confused, and I think she might be baffled, and I think she might be heartbroken. And at her core, she's a mother watching her child suffer and die. I think she's perplexed. But I think she probably is thinking through the things that she stored in her mind and stored in her heart. I think she's probably remembering the prophetic words spoken to her by Simeon. You know, it was the Jewish custom that when you had a firstborn child, you had to take him and present him at the temple. And we have an account in the Gospels of Mary and Joseph doing just that. They take their baby, Jesus, to the temple and present him there. They're greeted by a man named Simeon who has been waiting to see the Lord's salvation. And as soon as they walk in, he recognizes them. He praises God, saying, Now my eyes have seen your salvation. And on your verse sheet, Luke 2.34, listen to what Simeon says and keep in mind he is saying this to Mary. And Simeon blessed them and he said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." That's one of a number of prophetic statements that Mary heard that she didn't quite understand, but the scriptures always tell us she stored them up in her heart. She held on to them. And so I have to wonder if in this anguished moment she's remembering those words and she's thinking, is this the sword that's piercing my heart? Is that what this is all about? Well, as those four women in John stand there, Jesus looks out from the cross, and he spots them, and he identifies them. He sees his mother. That's what the text tells us. Now, I love whenever Jesus sees, it doesn't mean his eyes register something. When Jesus sees, it means he sees you, and he knows your needs. Because Jesus is all about meeting our needs. So Jesus sees his mother there, and I think he immediately knows what her needs are first. She needs protection there in that dangerous place as the mother of the criminal who is being killed. I think she needs comfort as the mother whose son is dying. He knows that she needs long-term protection and provision because Mary's a widow at this point. Her husband has died, and now her eldest son is being killed. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, just like all the rest of humanity, she has another need. She needs a savior. And Jesus looks out, and he sees all of those needs. And he speaks, and in devotion, he addresses that need, and he says, Woman, behold your son. And he is referring to the disciple John here, his cousin. He's saying, John is going to take care of you now like a son. John is going to step into this responsibility that has been mine. So in this statement, Jesus is making provision for his earthly mother. And it's widely accepted by historians and theologians. Joseph, her husband, had already died. Um, it's also believed that the other children that she had, um, the, the children who grew up with Jesus, at this point, they don't believe that he's the Messiah. 
they haven't believed that, and that's probably why they aren't there with their mother right now. Um, Most of the theologians believe they weren't even in Jerusalem. They were back in Galilee. So historically, we knew that it was a very difficult thing to be a widow. You were incredibly vulnerable. It was a male-dominated culture. Women were treated at that time much more like property than people. Uh, Women alone did not have opportunities to earn their own income, so they were dependent on their husbands to protect them and provide for them. And when the husband died, if there was a son, then they were dependent on that firstborn son to protect and provide. And Jesus knows everything is about to change, and she is going to be left without her firstborn son also. So he looks down from the cross, and he delegates that responsibility to John. And it's simply the work Uh, the duty of a loving son. That's what he's doing for his mother right now. Now, here's what's interesting. I don't know if you noticed this, but in that passage three times, Mary is referred to as the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. But when Jesus speaks, does he call her mother? He says, woman. Now, in my house, if my sons (laughs) call me woman... It's not going to go well. Uh, But we, we need to understand the cultural context here. That was not a rude term. Jesus was in no way being rude to his mother. Earlier, she's been referred to as mother. That is um, a comfortable, easy, familiar family kind of a word. Here, he's calling her woman. That's not disrespectful. It was actually quite courteous and respectful. And they say that kind of the modern version of that would be if he said, dearest lady. Dearest lady, so don't for a moment think that Jesus was disrespecting his mother here. There are several different views as to why Jesus addresses her this way. I think we can make a good case um, for the view that Jesus is indicating their relationship is about to be significantly altered forever. Um, Remember, Jesus was born fully man and fully God. That's why he has a mother, and that's why he has obligations and responsibilities as a son. But his deity is about to be proven. He's about to be killed and to be resurrected from the dead. And when that happens, all of his human relationships are going to be permanently altered. We've always heard Jesus makes all things new. In this instance, he's indicating the new relationship that he's going to have with Mary. Very soon, he will no longer be her son. He will simply be her savior. I really believe Jesus is using these words to prepare Mary for the new relationship. And this actually happened once before in the Gospels. I don't know if any of you thought about this when we read this. You know, we know very little about Jesus' childhood. He was raised by Mary and Joseph. He did not ever declare himself as Messiah during his um, childhood, his youth, his early adulthood. But at the time that was appointed by God, Jesus performed his first miracle, and that was the beginning of Jesus publicly presenting himself. And that happened at a wedding, and it was a wedding in a city called Cana, and Jesus was there, and his mother was there, and he already had a few disciples. And his disciples were there. And in this, um, in this instance, it's very similar. Mary is referred to as the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. And it says the mother of Jesus um, comes to him because a terrible thing has happened at the wedding. The host has run out of wine. And apparently that was a huge faux pas. And one historian that I was reading said you would socially never recover. If you ran out of wine at the wedding, it would be held against you forever. So apparently it was a very big deal to run out of wine. So 
Mary's referred to as the mother of Jesus, the mother of Jesus. It says, the mother of Jesus said to him, they've run out of wine. And Jesus answers her, not using the word mother, but again, this is John 2, 4. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus went on to take all these water pots and to perform a miracle and to turn them into exceptional fine wine. And he does it not in public view of everyone else. John tells us he does it in front of his little band of disciples so they will believe. It's his first miracle, and it's a major turning point in his ministry when he begins demonstrating these signs, telling the world he's the Son of God. And so in that instance, when he's changing his ministry, he also changes the reference from mother to woman. And here again, we see him at the cross. It's a major turning point in his life and in his ministry. And he changes that reference from mother to woman. I personally think it's a beautiful, tender grace. I think he is very gently getting Mary ready for the new relationship and the new state of things. I think that's why he calls her woman. When he says, behold your son... This is typical legal language. This is the exact same language that would have been used if it were an adoption hearing during that time. Only we know this isn't so much like an adoption. It's a little bit more like a will. But in these words of devotion, Jesus is legally establishing a new relationship between John and Mary. And now John would be the person responsible for Mary's immediate care and her long-term care and her protection and her provision. Okay, all through Jesus' life, he's been obedient and he's been devoted to his heavenly father and also to his earthly parents. And so that's why it's so consistent with what he's doing on the cross. We've already said we don't know a lot about his childhood. We do know that almost all Jewish children in Israel, the boys went to synagogue school. There was a synagogue school in Nazareth. So he probably went and he learned, uh, studied the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So the first thing he probably would have learned was Exodus 20:12, honor your father and your mother. That would have been taught to him from a very, very early age. We only have one account in the Bible of anything that ever happened in Jesus' childhood, and it's that little encounter where his parents, Mary and Joseph, take him to Jerusalem to go to the temple for the Passover at 12 years old, and they lose him on the return journey. So the Gospels tell us that it takes them three days to get back to Jerusalem and find them. And when they frantically find him and ask, what were you doing? Like I would say, what were you thinking to my boys? Listen to what his answer is. This is in Luke 2:49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Isn't that interesting? It's devotion and obedience to his heavenly father. And then it goes right on down in Luke 2, uh, 52. And it says, they took him home. They returned to Nazareth. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and with men. So if Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor, Jesus went home and was obedient and honoring to his parents. So the little bit that we know about his childhood, we know he was honoring and devoted to his earthly parents, and he was honoring and he was devoted to his heavenly father. And now we're going to see this last act of honor and devotion from the cross where he is honoring his heavenly father and taking care of his widowed mother. It says John immediately responds by taking Mary into his own home. That doesn't mean they left at that moment. It really means he took her into his keeping. He took her into his care immediately. He accepted that responsibility. 
Now, a really interesting thing happens here. If you've kept your timelines, time look at them. We've got a few extras there on the table. This is the third statement from the cross that Jesus makes. And at some point after he makes this statement, darkness covers the earth, even though it's the middle of the day. The earth goes dark. Uh, many theologians believe that when Jesus delegates this care of his mother, he has really completed every responsibility of his human nature. All these human relationships, he has now been fully responsible to all of them. Think about it. He's dealt with the humans around him who've abused him and put him up on the cross. He's dealt with the criminal beside him in need of salvation. And now he's dealt with the care of his mother, the human that probably was closest to him. This quote was beautiful, I thought. As his humanity's work on earth is done, nature responds, and the earth goes dark, saying goodbye to the Son of Man. That's compelling, isn't it? Made me think of John 13:1, When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I truly think that's what we're seeing here, loving them fully to the end. All right, we've looked at these last sayings over these last three weeks, and we've been reminded that the things Jesus says from the cross totally match and, and highlight the way he lived his life, um, the way he lived his life and the things that he taught to his disciples. And from the book of John, we're reminded that when we see the heart of Jesus, we see the character of God. So all of Jesus' words and actions and things that he does, that always matches the heart and character of God. He is the perfect expression of God. Hebrews 1.3 says that exactly. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So that, that's a really important premise for where we're going with this. If everything Jesus is doing here from the cross and everything he's done in his life is attached to how God would live and, and what God cares about, we need to keep that in mind. So when we look back at how he lived his life, this idea of living with devotion, we can know where Jesus is expressing devotion God was also devoted. We can absolutely know that for certain. So when Jesus is respecting and protecting his mother from the cross, we know something very distinct about God. We know that God is a respecter and a protector of family. That's absolutely what we know about God here. And we see that all through the Bible, not just here in this word from the cross. Think about it. From the very beginning, God established families. They were his idea, weren't they? I personally believe God gave us families as a concrete symbol so that we could understand something that was sacred. I think he gives us families so we can understand this idea of being drawn into the family of God. I think he gives us human families so we can understand the idea of being adopted. I think he gives us human families so we can understand this ideal of generous, magnanimous, fatherly love and forgiveness and grace. I think God gives us this symbol, uh, family as symbol, so that we can understand something sacred, um, so that it all makes sense. And personally, I think we should be really careful with God's symbols. I think we should be careful not to distort them or abuse them. We see in the Old Testament, God put boundaries and commands around families in order to protect their unity and peace. God wanted families to be places where devotion was displayed. And here's the deal. When devotion is displayed in families, the world sees a little glimmer, a little picture of something sacred. 
the world sees a little picture of what God looks like when families function the way they're supposed to. Well, during Jesus' public ministry, we see the same thing. We see him respecting and protecting families the same way God did. Um, I had you read a few instances where Jesus is interacting with families, and I think this is important. You read in Luke 7. That's the instance where a widow has just lost her only son, and it's actually the funeral. He's being carried out of the city. Jesus recognizes immediately that it's not just the loss of a son, it's the loss of the family. The the woman is widowed, so there is no husband, and now there is no heir, there is no protector, there is no provider. And it said Jesus had compassion. And so here's what we know. If Jesus had compassion, God was full of compassion. God was full of compassion for that widow. So when Jesus acts to bring that only son back to life, he's just not re- he's not just restoring that man's life, he's restoring the family. He's keeping that family intact because with the death of that only son, the family would have just dissolved completely. That's what Jesus is doing there. You also read uh, a similar miracle in John 4. And in this instance, an official comes to Jesus and he says, my son is so sick, he's dying, he's far away. Um, Jesus simply speaks and says, your son will live and remotely the boy is healed. This doesn't just protect and restore the son, but it protects the family. It holds the family together. And when we read on down in verse 53, it said, the official believed and his entire household believed. That means God and Jesus respected that family so much that they were concerned for their eternal salvation and it was secured forever in that instance. So when Jesus acts with devotion and honors his family responsibility, we see a very clear picture of how God wants us to act within our own families because we see the things that God values and loves and is devoted to here. Um, 1 Timothy 5.8 on your verse sheet gives us a real clear picture of this. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All right. So it's very clear from the beginning of the Old Testament when God creates families and puts boundaries around them, and then we see Jesus respecting and protecting and restoring families all through the New Testament. Um, It's there, and it begins with honor your mother and your father. So if God and Jesus are respecting and protecting families, we need to also, don't we? That's exactly what we need to do. We need to respect and protect the things that God does. And I think we start, we start respecting families, each one of us right here, by honoring our mother and our father. And I think it's interesting, every single one of us has a mother and a father. We don't all have spouses, we don't all have children, we don't all have brothers or sisters, but we all have a mother and a father. Maybe we never knew them, and maybe they're no longer in our lives, but we all have them, and we're all commanded to honor them, every one of us. Um, Unfortunately, we weren't all born into families that practice respect and devotion. I know you don't all have a dad like I do, Um, Sometimes the relationships with parents can be damaging and even dangerous. That is a sad reality in our world, and I'm aware of it. And it's a heartbreaking reality, and it's actually the tragedy of distorting one of God's symbols. When God's symbols get distorted, bad things happen, and that does happen. However, the Bible doesn't say, honor your parents if they are good parents. And nowhere does it say, honor them unless they've treated you badly. 
It doesn't say that. It says honor your mother and father. And to me, that means no matter what. No matter what, we simply honor our mother and father. We hold high God's value of family when we honor our mother and father no matter what and when we encourage the people around us to honor them no matter what. And I'm going to be honest. I know this is hard. If you've had one of those family situations where a parent is, has been dangerous or damaging or you're encouraging someone who's got that kind of a relationship, I know it can be hard and I know it will cost you dearly to choose to honor and respect those parents. But God knows that it costs you also. And I personally believe God receives that as the most beautiful, costly sacrifice. And God receives that as your act of beautiful devotion. You do it because he asked you to. You honor mother and father. That's how we respect families in our culture today. And for those of us who are mothers, let's think about our role in this. We can actually help our children obey God. We can help our children respect families if we will act honorably, (laughs) if we will make it easy for them to honor mother and father. So we have a responsibility on both sides of it there if we're mothers. That's how we respect families today. I also think that we can protect families today the same way God did. We can't step in there and perform miracles, but we definitely can intervene, can't we? Um, We can step in and offer wise counsel and support to a marriage that is in trouble and encourage people in that struggle. We can offer assistance to parents who are overwhelmed and at their wit's end. We can offer them relief and support and help. We can recognize that some families carry very difficult loads, like families who have children with disabilities and single-parent families, and where we know they have a difficult load, we can be ready to step in and offer help. We can strengthen families who are in danger and strengthen families who are in peril. And in that way, we are protecting families the same way God and Jesus do. And the last thing I think we can do here is I think we can elevate the value of family in our culture. And I think it's never been more important. We can speak words in the culture that communicate the honor that God attaches to family. We can remind the culture that families were God's idea. Unfortunately, we live in a culture that doesn't really do this. Um, We live in a culture that overtly um, and then somewhat more subtly suggests uh, a devaluing of family. I don't know if you've heard this very often, but I bet if I asked you to raise your hand, you all would. I bet you've heard somebody say, well, you shouldn't stay in that family. You deserve to be happy. Well, you don't deserve for people to treat you badly. You shouldn't stand that happy. Well, you need to go find what makes you happy. You don't deserve that. That message is everywhere in our culture. And here's what that message says. Personal happiness, way more valuable than family stability. Immediate personal gratification, way more valuable than family. That's what that message is saying, and that message is wrong. I have personally witnessed people who speak those words. I have personally witnessed folks who so dishonor family that they encourage and assist people in leaving and abandoning their families. And I have one thought on that. Every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we live our lives. I don't want to stand before the respecter and protector and creator of families and have to answer for helping take a family apart. 
that would scare me to death. So I think we can speak words that communicate God's value of family and our culture, and we cannot be the voice that says, you don't deserve that, you should leave, you just need to be happy. We don't need to be that voice. And if we'll choose not to be that voice, we elevate the value of family in our culture. God values families, Christ valued families, and it's the same for us. Now here's an interesting uh, uh, twist on that. Jesus says in Matthew 12, and he is not speaking to his family here. Matthew 12, verse 49, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he's my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, Jesus is really expanding this idea of who is your family here. He's telling us that we're all in a big family together when we are faithful, obedient followers of Jesus. We're all in his family together. So if we're all in this family of God together and God says respect and protect family, do we have an obligation to protect this big family of God, the church? I think he's telling us that we do. Now, when I say church, I don't mean this building. I don't mean Christ Chapel. I mean the universal church. I mean the people all over the world who collectively profess faith in Jesus and are following Jesus. God says we are his family. So I think we need to step back for a minute and think about how do we respect and protect that family also because I think Jesus is asking us to. I think we need to honor this family. I think within the family of God, we need to protect relationships that are in peril and make sure there's unity and peace there. I think we need to hold high the value of that family in our culture and help people understand that it's the family of God. What would that look like? Just today, I was thinking, well, if I'm a respecter and protector of this family of God, maybe I need to zip my lips a little bit and not be so critical about my other family members. (laughs) Just maybe. Maybe I don't need to approach this church with a consumer attitude, with an idea of you're here to make my life easier. Maybe instead I need to approach it with an idea of this is a place where I can display devotion And when devotion is displayed here, the world gets a little vision, a little picture of something sacred. Kind of a cool idea. Just think about it. I see one other thing as Jesus looks out and speaks these words of devotion. He's definitely looking out, and as he looks at Mary, he's recognizing her as his mother. I think he sees her in another role also. I think he recognizes her as a widow, and because of that, she's relegated to the margins of society. I think he sees the marginalized when he looks out from the cross. We've already talked a little bit about widows. They were very vulnerable. Not only were they without provision, but we know they were much more likely to be oppressed by unscrupulous people. They lacked a male protector. We know from the scriptures that the legal system did not always feel obligated to intervene or to defend or to protect their cause. We also know in the Bible, God regularly groups widows together with this little group of people. It's always widows and orphans and aliens or sojourners and the poor and the oppressed. God always puts them together. They're the most vulnerable, the most humiliated segment of the population. And God is always respecting and protecting them. From the very beginning, we see God respecting and protecting, putting a hedge of protection around them. Listen to what he says in Exodus 22, 22. This is as God is giving the law. So this is his command. 
You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That is strong protective language, isn't it? Around your tables, you looked up a few more verses. You looked up those Jeremiah 49, 10. You looked up Zechariah 7 and 9. In one of those, God says, woe. That means condemnation. That's bad when God says, woe. Woe to the person who oppresses the poor, the widow, the orphan, the alien. So God condemns people who take advantage of marginalized people from the very beginning. Jesus says the same thing. He says it in Mark 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So now we've heard directly God's condemnation and Jesus' condemnation for people who oppress the vulnerable and the marginalized. I think when Jesus looked out and saw Mary from the cross, he didn't just see his mother. I think he saw a marginalized woman. And we know from the scriptures, God's heart beats faster for the marginalized. He cares deeply for them and he respects them and he protects them. Now this idea that the things Jesus is doing from the cross, they match the whole way he lived his life. Let's think back about his life and let's think back about did Jesus respect and protect the marginalized? We're going to go quick, but I'm going to give you a couple examples here. We always see Jesus protecting these women. Anytime Jesus talks to a woman, he is respecting and protecting the marginalized because this was not a time when women were respected. This was not a time when a rabbi would ever condescend to teach a woman. And Jesus always stops and talks to women. So that's the first time we always see him uh, looking out and recognizing the folks in the margins. In John 4, he talks to a woman at the well. She's a woman. Uh, That's one reason he wouldn't talk to her. She's had six different husbands, and some of them she wasn't married to. That was a woman who lived in the margins, and Jesus offers her living water so she'll never thirst again. In John 8, he speaks to another woman. This one is a Jewish woman who's been caught in adultery. She's been caught in the act, and Jewish law says they are to stone her to death immediately. And Jesus intervenes, and he protects her, and he stops them from killing her, and he forgives her, and he says, go and sin no more. We've already talked about Mary Magdalene. She was possessed with seven demons. Do you think she lived on the margins of proper society? I think it's possible she lived out in the caves and in the tombs where the other people who were possessed with demons lived. And Jesus heals her, and she's allowed to become one of his followers. Jesus looks out in Luke 17, and he sees a group of ten lepers. They're crossing on the other side of the street and calling out to to him. And they're on the other side of the street because their culture will not allow a leper to get close to you because they are unclean. And Jesus heals them all. He's looking out to the margins all the time. One of my favorites 
This is in John 5. Jesus is at the pool of Bethesda. This is an area immediately inside one of the big city gates. Now, here's what you need to know about the city gates. That's where the prominent people went. That's where people went to conduct business transactions and to finalize agreements. That's where vendors came and went selling their goods. Important, prominent people were at the city gates. In this instance, Jesus goes to the city gates, and do you know who he sees? He looks out to the margins and he sees the man who's been laying there as an invalid for 38 years. And he looks straight at him and he says, do you want to be healed? All through his life, we see him looking to the margins. And here's my favorite. In the temple, as all the important wealthy people line up to give their big gifts, there's a poor widow there. Jesus looks out and who does he spot? He spots the widow. She's putting two little copper coins in. All that wealth and affluence around him. And Jesus says, hers is the most generous. Hers is commendable. Not only does he protect and respect, he gives her value and he gives her great purpose. That's in Luke 21 and also in Mark 12. That's how Jesus lived. He was always looking out to the margins, even when he was on the cross. So what are we to do with that? I think it's the same answer. We respect and protect the things that God respects and protects, including the people who live on the margins. So Jesus was looking out to the margins. I think we need to look to the margins too. And I think we can look to the margins even when our circumstances are difficult. Jesus did from the cross. We don't get a pass. We need to look out, look the way Jesus looks, identify the needs, and help. Maybe they need a hand up. Maybe they need a word of devotion. Maybe they need you to come alongside them and hold them by the elbow and say, you are not alone. You have a family of God, and we will walk through this with you. We need to communicate respect for marginalized people by seeing them and by responding to their needs, by giving them dignity and worth. We got a really interesting email here at the church this week. Uh, Christ Chapel has a disaster relief team that goes out whenever there's a crisis. They went to Moore, Oklahoma a year ago after that tornado. Can you imagine how marginalized you would feel if for a year you've been living with your home and your property torn up and destroyed? Uh, we got this email just last week. It's from a woman who, who had her property destroyed. She says that she's been dreading the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the tornado. I started feeling the dread of that a few weeks ago, and then along came you and your team. I know people still care, but when you show your care by showing up and working hard just to get me back to normal, it's, the just, it's just the best feeling in the world. God is so good. How beautiful is that? Don't you think she felt marginalized because her house was all torn up? You show you care by showing up, and God looks good. It's that little act of devotion that gives you a glimmer of God's devotion in heaven. When you act like a family, people see a little glimmer of God, and that's a really, really good thing. That's what devotion looks like. And God's will for each one of us is that we would be transformed to look like that, transformed into the image of Christ. And so I think that includes expressing devotion the same way Jesus did. When I looked at all of this, I thought they're beautiful words of devotion to a mother and they're beautiful words of devotion to people who live in the margins. But really, they're words of devotion to all of us. 
aren't they? They totally are. Because we know that Jesus sits at the right hand of God right now and he still looks out. And it says he's praying, he's interceding for us. Jesus looks out and he sees you. He's still looking out. He never stops looking out. And that is almost too good to imagine. Maybe you feel marginalized, vulnerable, lonely, wondering if anyone cares. God tells you that he is still looking out. God tells you he sees. says in the Psalms, where can we go from his presence? He's looking out and he's seeing. It says in the Psalms that he records our tears. It says that Jesus enters our suffering with us. God sees. His love for us is so great that even while we were sinners, he sent us his respect and his protection in the form of a Savior who looks out from the cross and he sees each one of us. The truth that God keeps looking out and he sees me is overwhelming, but it's beautiful and it's true. And it's God standing right there beside us saying, you are not alone. You are not alone. Hebrews 13.5, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In Matthew, he says, lo, I am with you always. It's God looking out in the margins and seeing you and seeing your need. In Matthew 12, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think Jesus is holding each one of us tight by the elbow so we won't faint. I think he's saying, You have a family, it's my family. And I am going to demonstrate unchanging, faithful, devoted love until the end. I think that's Jesus' devotion to you, and I think it's perfect devotion. Let's pray. God, your good and your love is absolutely overwhelming to us. Thank you for these words from the cross. Thank you for sending your son to show us your perfect love and your perfect devotion. Our prayer is that we can get our heads around it, that we can understand and receive that love as you would like us to, and that that overflow of that love could come out of us and we could demonstrate devotion in the world. Lord, I pray for every woman who's here today. I pray for the woman whose heart is aching over the reality of honoring a mother and father who maybe have been dangerous. I pray that your comfort would overwhelm her and that she would offer you that honor as a beautiful sacrifice of praise and that you would rejoice in receiving it. I pray for all of us that we can honor family, that we can honor the marginalized, that we can live in a way in the world that shows a glimmer of heaven. I thank you for putting us in your big family together, and I ask you to protect us here in your family. Let us love each other well, let us serve each other well, and let us act in a way that promotes you and promotes family and promotes devotion. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.